Welcome to the latest episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. My name is Neil Morrison of Crash.net and Bike Sport News. And in this episode, we will be discussing the very, very eventful German Grand Prix, which will no doubt have very significant ramifications for the eventual destination of the 2016 MotoGP World Championship. Now, today, I'm very fortunate to be joined by... David Emmett. Of... <laughs> <laughs> David of Motor Matters and, of course, the Paddock Pass podcast. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for joining me, David, for today's show. The German Grand Prix was very eventful indeed. Um, it was a it was a great race. It was an exciting race, and it was a dramatic race in some ways. And it's that kind of drama started almost as soon as we went out to watch the bikes on Friday morning. Yeah, I, I suppose you could even say that the the, the drama started before the uh, before the weekend because the uh, Michelin had obviously brought tyres for what they expected to be normal Saxon ring weather, which is sort of warm and warm and humid mostly. And then we turned up on, uh, yeah, we turned up on Thursday and it was starting to get chilly and Friday it was positively, it was positively freezing. I mean, it was what, sort of 13, 14, 15 degrees, something like that, rather than 25, uh, which is what it normally was. And that caused uh, a lot of riders, a lot of problems. Yeah, exactly. And it was uh, it was quite strange because about three or four minutes into FP1 on Friday morning, we dandered out to go and watch at the end of the at the end of the paddock and we're quite fortunate in the Saxon ring in that turn 11, you're basically at the end of the paddock, you're standing right at the... Uh, at the barrier of that and we moseyed up the pit lane and as we were walking there uh, Scott Redding's destroyed Ducati was uh, wheeled past us and almost uh, within seconds of getting to the barrier uh, two more riders threw it into the into the gravel trap there yeah I was actually I was quite pleased although it was uh, rather cruel of me to be pleased because I told you and Pete uh, Pete McLaren it was your first time in the Saxon ring I said oh we've got to go up and stand at the end of the paddock and watch turn 11 because it's just so spectacular there and if they're going to be crashing then that's where they're going to be crashing and we got there we'd literally been standing there about 30 seconds when uh, Jorge Lorenzo hammered into the gravel uh, followed very very shortly by uh, Stefan Bradl so yes it was uh, uh, it was clear that that well, the conditions were unusual and the tyres weren't up to the conditions and the Saxon Ring is just a really, really difficult track. And I guess there were there were plenty of talking points that went on throughout the rest of the weekend. Saturday, we, we saw Lorenzo continue to struggle in quite a quite a strange and dramatic fashion uh, that really wasn't, uh, wasn't like him so much um, to struggle to this extent. Um, and then there were obviously forecasts for rain on Sunday. The rain did arrive, perhaps earlier than expected. And basically, we started the race on Sunday with uh, with a soaking wet track. Uh, the rain was, I think, stopping just before the race started. And the kind of drying conditions then really dictated the the sort of the narrative of the race uh, from there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the, the rain um, it was it. If you like a typical flag to flag race, where the the race started absolutely soaking, uh, I was walking down pit lane just before, just to sort of try and judge the conditions. It was drizzling a little bit as we. Uh, this was about fifteen twenty minutes before the uh, uh, before the race started. It was, you know it, it was starting to drizzle, but it was not. Re- it was never really uh, particularly wet. 
Um, and it was starting to, the, the rain was starting to lift. So it was clear that, that it was going to dry out. But the, the question was, you know, how long it would take because it was so very, very, it was, yeah, it was just really difficult. It was really difficult conditions. It had rained really heavily all morning. Uh, so there was a lot of water about. And, uh, and the question was, you know, it was clearly going to be a, a question of strategy. Yeah, exactly. And it wasn't just a case of, uh, of to what extent would it dry out, but also would it rain again because uh, it was only really in four o'clock, five o'clock on Sunday afternoon that we saw any sort of sun. Yeah. Uh, it was very hazy and misty throughout the track. And there was, of course, that, um, you know, there was that possibility that when certain riders um, pitted for intermediates and indeed slicks, uh, that there could be a, a rain shower later in the race as well. It was really a tyre race. It was about who gambled on uh, getting the tyres right because you saw, uh, at the start of the race, you saw a, a real mixture of medium and uh, hard, or the, the soft and the hard front uh, rain tires. Uh, Michelin actually bought an, an extra soft front rain tire because of the uh, surprisingly cold weather, they, which they hadn't planned for. They, they bought, I think, they bought that in on on Saturday or something. But you could really see the difference between the people who started off on the uh, on the soft fronts, who could sort of you know just put the hammer down right from the start, and people who started out on the uh, on the harder. Uh, on the harder rain tyre, who, as the track started to dry, really started to make up uh, ground really dramatically in the uh, in the second half of the race. And then once you had bikes being switched, again, it was a gamble. Do you gamble on the... Uh, on the intermediates or do you go for the slicks and, and really uh, and really take a risk and what does your bike need you know what really what what can you how much heat can you get into the front tire to make it stick and about halfway through the race it seemed that uh, it seemed that we were going to have the championship race um, almost restarted in some respects because Mark Marquez was languishing at the bottom end of the top 10 he had a massive moment through turn eight uh, around midway point through the race and we saw, um, kind of like the first race at Aston, we saw Valentino up front with uh, with Andrea Davizioso. A couple of other guys were in there, Hector Barbara, uh, Cal Crutchlow, Jack Miller. Um, and at that point, it seemed that uh, Rossi was set to really take a big chunk out of Marquez's lead. Yeah, exactly. Well, the, the, the interesting thing was the difference between, for example, Cal Crutchlow and, and Mark Marquez. Marquez start, I think he took the lead into the first corner. He lost it about halfway around the first lap, and then he just kept on going backwards and backwards. He'd taken the softer of the of the wet tyres, and that tyre wasn't really working for the Hondas. It was starting to go backwards. Um, Cal Crutchlow took the hard tyre, and that was really, really tricky in the opening laps. Uh, but you really saw him, uh, especially in the second half, uh, uh, or, well, uh, after about sort of six or seven laps, he really started making inroads and, and, and quickly closed, uh, closed a lot of gaps. He was a second or so faster than, uh, than a, lot of, uh, a lot of the guys and actually closed right up to the, uh, to the front runners and was in, in the podium battle um, uh, towards the end. So, uh, again, it, it was almost uh, the tyre choice also dictated uh, strategy to some point because... Marquez was going backwards so quickly that uh, there was absolutely no point in him staying out for much longer. Yeah, exactly. And indeed, that moment uh, in which he ran on a turn eight was in part because his front tire was just destroyed. It wasn't giving him any feedback. It seemed to just be totally shot. And he said after that, um, you know, he had nothing. Well, he had a lot to lose. But in terms of the race, he was only going to go further backwards with that front tire. So he may as well have pitted as soon as possible. Um, it was interesting listening to Crutch, though. Uh, after the race, he was talking about um, the difficulties of getting that that harder, wet front tire up into up to working temperature he said he nearly crashed twice on and the warm-up lap it was so hard and that's when he wasn't even pushing he was just riding around trying to get a bit of heat up into it and he said possibly the most difficult thing was trying to maintain his cool in the opening laps where he could see the he could see the leaders getting away 
and he just didn't have the grip that uh, that they had. And he had to be very, very calm and measured uh, to, to kind of build up the working temperature so he could then feel his way into the race. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, that the, the kind of front uh, tire choice really dictated um, the kind of play of, at the front of the race. Yeah, absolutely. We saw the. Uh, I mean, we we saw all throughout the weekend. We saw some really interesting people uh, actually uh, leading the race. We saw Petrucci lead the race uh, because Petrucci had a had a actually a, a storming what first ten or fifteen laps. Yeah, best qualifying of, of his career. Yeah, yeah, yes, that's right. And also, the opening of the race was really strong. He was clearly leading the race and was uh, was in charge of the race until, uh, unfortunately, the front just just went and he went into the uh, into the gravel, and that completely ruined his race because on the way back round, his bike caught fire. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which is, uh, I mean, w- w- well. When uh, bikes start catching fire, then you know that we're in for an interesting race. There's something which is, which is, shall we say, slightly unusual. But of course, because because he, that bike caught fire, that completely ruined the rest of his race because he came in. I think he switched to another bike with wet. But then when he wanted to come mm. in, he had to he had to sort of sit on his bike while they manually changed his uh, his bike around to put uh, to put slicks on. So that it, yeah, I mean he was. Um, uh, he was quite upset about that, uh, understandably, because because the the start of the race was fantastic. Yeah, exactly. And then we also saw, um, really for the first time, I think, um, in his MotoGP career, we saw Hector Barbera. Yeah. Um, up with the up with the leaders, uh, a surprise front row qualifier um, around the Saxon ring. We had come to to Germany expecting Ducatis to struggle as they had done for the previous five years. Because the Saxon ring is the very antithesis of a Ducati track. It is tight and uh, short and they're, they're really the only place they can actually use the horsepower that they have is up the hill out of the final corner uh, and across the straight. They do have good mechanical grip but uh, you know the and, and reasonable braking but they, they still don't turn as well on the brakes as, as for example, Andras and the Suzuki do. Yeah, sure. And then there's also that issue that when they're on maximum lean, um, well, Davizioso had told us this before we came to the Saxon ring, but when they're at maximum lean, sometimes the the edge grip isn't quite as good as other bikes as well. Um, and there are points in the Saxon ring where you are on the side of the tyre for an awful long time. I would say there's there are a few points of the Saxon ring where you're not on the edge of the tyre, and that's, <laughs> that, that just about sums the, uh, sums the circuit up. But Barbara... Uh, Okay, he got a toe off Marquez, uh, two toes, I think, in qualifying um, to, to to sit second on the grid, uh, only his second front row qualifying in his MotoGP career. And then he was uh, he was also a player at the front, uh, quite surprisingly, in wet conditions, um, was looking very good. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the bike really suited the conditions. And, and Barbara just really had, uh, I mean, you know, you, can't, you got, can't take it away from him. He just had a really, really strong weekend and he was really competitive. It wasn't until really until they, uh, until they swapped tyres that he started to lose ground again. I think, uh, I'm not even sure what, I think he went out on intermediates, but that, it, it, basically, he just lost too much ground after the bike swap to to be anywhere near the podium. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, looking at, basically, uh, the person who had the most to lose took the biggest risk and it ended up ended up giving him the biggest reward. Um, Mark Marquez, was he lucky? I saw some people on, on Twitter and social media saying that uh, a large portion of luck had helped him get his third win of the of the 2016 season. But it seemed like there was a little more going on than just luck to me, David. What about you? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, the team made the perfect call on tyres, even though it was a very risky call, going to slicks uh, very early because I think he came in around about lap uh, 17 or 18. Um, the rest of the front runners 
first came in lap 23 or 24, I think, and this is of a 30-lap race, that there were still some properly wet lines um, when Marquez came in on slicks, uh, and it took him a couple of laps to actually get some temperature into his tyres. But once the temperature was in his tyres, he was lapping six, seven seconds a lap faster than the guys on the front on the on the wets. So he, I, I think he's his hand was forced um, a little by conditions, by the fact that he'd chosen the wrong tyre to the, the wrong wet tyre to go out on. You know, choosing the soft instead of the instead of the hard, which meant that he really went backwards from the start of the race. But you know, as soon as he came in, he did that perfectly. The 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 bike change came uh, came perfectly. He came in at exactly the right moment, and he switched to exactly the right tires. So he, yeah, I think also because he was going backwards, he actually had time to think about um, uh, when was the best time to come in. Whereas what you saw at the front, you had Davicioso sort of leading, and then behind that you had uh, Rossi battling with. Uh, I think Rossi was almost virtually on the back of Davicioso. You had Barbara, you had Crutchlow by then caught up. Uh, Jack Miller sitting on the back of that group and they were all so caught up battling with each other that they sort of forgot well they basically ignored their uh, their their pit signs for their pit balls for for a very very long time for well at least three laps i reckon but because by then they were really closing in on him yeah exactly and crutchlow said that uh that basically he he was set behind davizioso and rossi two of the most experienced guys in the field and he couldn't even comp- begin to comprehend um the fact that someone else would have pitted for slick tires he thought that well you know i'm sitting behind two very experienced guys two of the smartest riders on the grid uh, i'll just follow what they're doing and surely that'll be enough to that'll be enough to win he couldn't uh, he had he basically was getting signals from his team to come in and pit but he was so in um he was in the middle of the battle and to such an extent focusing on that that uh, that he ignored it and he also said that he just you know the thought to pit didn't really come into his mind yeah i think th- that's just a polite way of saying that i had the red mist um <laughs> uh, i think all of them had the same thing they're so focused you get you get I mean, you only have so much uh, attention, and also I think, especially for for Crutchley, it really depended where you were in the in the pit lane. Because the thing about the pit lane at, at the Saxon Ring is, uh, the pit lane itself is relatively uh, flat and level, uh, but the last corner is really uphill over a blind crest. So uh, you know, you come up and you, it's not until very late that you actually see your see your pit board. And if you're right at the start of the pit lane, then you're uh, yeah, you're pretty much in trouble. I think Crutchlow, LCR, they were right. I think they were almost in the very first pit box. So it was actually very it was hard for him to see his pit board uh, Yamaha were luckier they were much further down the pit lane so uh, I'm sure Rossi would have been able to see his, his pit board if he wanted to the Ducatis I think Barbara was also a little bit closer up towards sort of Crutchlow's end of the uh, to begin the beginning of the pit lane so yeah it was there was it was just really quite difficult indeed to actually see what was going on yeah I spoke to Carl Crutchlow's crew chief after the race uh, Christophe Bourguignon and he was saying that the lamps that they had signaled for Crutchlow to come in and uh, they had put box on his pit board they could just see that he wasn't even and looking across at the pit wall. He was just looking completely forward the whole time, you know, totally engrossed in that fight. Um, and then, then indeed it was only when when Davizioso and Rossi in front of him decided to pit the Crutchlow at the last minute thought that, right, I better go in as well. Uh, which which I guess was the, was was the right decision at that time. Yeah, exactly. So I suppose if you want to talk about Mark Marquez being lucky, then um, he was lucky in that he chose the wrong tyre. He was lucky in that the, the the rest of the field were all engaged in battle. But that's this is exactly the kind of luck you would normally have in any race. So uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's just the way that the, the races unfold sometimes. But the the fact is they got their strategy perfectly right and and executed it and actually carried it out and, and did what needed to. Be be done. Yeah, and Marcus said after the race that um, that 
you know, there was that kind of clarity and communication between himself and his crew. Yeah. He had, he, I don't think he's used the intermediates this no, year. No, exactly. The most in, uh, interesting thing to me after uh, after the race in the press conferences, he said, uh, for us, the intermediate tyre doesn't exist. Sure. Uh, and that makes things makes choices so much easier because you don't have to think you know well am i going to use the uh, am i going to use the intermediate here uh, or do i go with the sticks or whatever you just completely ignore it and it means you don't have to worry about that it takes away a certain amount of confusion then it's just a question of okay when do i come in and do that i mean they haven't spent any time on the intermediate uh, so they haven't really been able to test it uh, but uh, that again to me is just smart strategy it's just you know sure. thinking about it thinking about it and having the clarity and yeah. the, the character and, and and the peace of mind to be so sure in your decisions as well yeah i mean that's that's about that's about confidence really isn't it sure yeah exactly yeah yeah and if there's one man coming in this weekend that had confidence it was mark marquez it also i think it's, it's worth pointing out that uh you know we, we say he came in and he pitted and he you know he pitted at the right time um he pitted with the right tires but in certain respects that could have gone horribly wrong we saw marquez pit and just after midway the midway point of the race paul espargaro also came into pit lane at the same time and left in intermediates and espargaro crashed after three corners which showed that with intermediates yeah those conditions were fairly treacherous so marquez on slicks did a phenomenal job not just to keep it upright but uh, to basically work his front tire sufficiently to get work to get it to a working temperature and then you know be able to be able to use that whenever the dry line you know became a little bit wider you know i think what marquez did in the first few three or four laps after he came out of the pits was, was quite phenomenal and i was speaking to wilco zielenberg after the race and he said that he doesn't think anyone else in the class could could have done that no, absolutely. I think also, I mean, uh, what you really see is the, the way that the different bikes work. That made a difference as well. Uh, so, for example, you saw really clearly the Honda is very much, you know, it, it's a real front end bike. What it does really well is brake and then turn on the brakes. And that means you can get an awful lot of heat into the tyre. And in fact, one of the... Too much heat sometimes. Exactly. Well, a lot of the times. Yes, exactly. When on hot days, um, it, the Hondas have actually been suffering because the hot tyre or the... Um, uh, the, the, the tires just simply haven't been stiff enough or or hard enough to actually cope with the uh, with the conditions. Um, and this when this time it played around the other way. It meant that because uh, Pedrosa uh, and again Pedrosa is an absolute demon on the brakes. Um, Crutchlow can also do the same sort of thing. He's quite he's very good at actually getting heat into the front tire. Um, yeah, he's very aggressive on the front end. Yeah, ex exactly. Which is what you need to actually heat the front tire up and get the front uh, the, the front tire working. Uh, and so that uh, to me is it is a really big part in in why it was such a successful pit stop especially for marcus but also for crutchlow because you know crutchlow went out on slicks and did uh, did the same thing it's just that he did it sort of a, a few laps too late and what you saw with the yamahas for example the riders who went out on intermediates they are the, the bike is longer the bike is lower it doesn't doesn't stress the front as much so it's actually a little bit harder to get the front uh, the front tire up to temperature whenever the temperatures are cold um, we see that the Yamaha has really struggled. We saw that on Friday when, the, the, as you mentioned earlier, uh, when the temperatures were well down, I don't think any of the Yamaha riders were inside the top 10. And Rossi said that, you know, that basically influenced their decision to go out with intermediates because just with the, with, with any of, even the softest front slick available to the Yamaha men, uh, there was still that danger um, that it wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't get up to uh, sufficient temperature for for the race. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, uh, probably the 
uh, a front slick would have been the best choice for them, but it would have been such a massive gamble that it would have been, uh, you know, he either would have got on the podium or else he would have, uh, you know, finished way back in Lorenzo territory, sort of, you know, 15th, 16th um, uh, and out of the points or maybe crashed out. Whereas he took the intermediates and he ended up intermediate, I think, eighth, which yeah, is, eighth. Yeah, 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 exactly. Right in the midst, uh, the midpoint of the points. He was uh, seventh place was snatched off him in the final lap by Jack Miller, um, who, you know, you have to say, like, like Crutzlow was, was probably cursing himself after the race for not pitting sooner. Um, you could have been looking at it all on the podium there, I think, uh, yeah. had, had Miller had Miller pitted at the same time as Crutzlow did. He decided to stay out. Um, he was ignoring calls from his team for laps and laps, thinking like, oh, you know, I'm, you know, miles in the lead. Uh, now that the others have pitted and I've only got five, six, seven laps to go, but little did he know that Mark Marquez was skating around about nine seconds a lap quicker than him, and uh, and he soon realised that you know he was going to just fall backwards and backwards if he didn't do it. Well, I watched the race last night with uh, with my wife again, looking at it, actually watching it, not not in the press room when it's such an incredibly hectic atmosphere while it's actually happening live, but actually re-watching it, it was amazing some of the passes that uh, that riders were actually making, especially Marquez. Marquez, you could really see the uh, absolute speed differential. Um, once he had his, uh, once he had his tires up to temperature, he was just flying past people. It was, it was almost like he was he'd accidentally gone into the middle of the Moto Two race. He was that much faster. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, you could see that whenever he was passing Lorenzo, um, Lorenzo was still out there on wets, and Marquez was out in slicks, and it was just like watching, you know, as you say, a guy, two guys in different classes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and for all intents and purposes, it may as well have been uh, with the, the struggles that Lorenzo was encountering throughout the race. Um, so speaking. Of Lorenzo, he had an, an awful day, an awful weekend. He's, he's had a, he's had two awful weeks, basically, or two two awful weekends in a row. Well, three you could if you stretch it back to Barcelona. Yeah, 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 true. But then again, uh, well, he was starting to go backwards uh, at Barcelona, but um, it, that would have been a mediocrely bad were bad weekend until Iannone took him out. Sure. Uh, but, a mediocrely bad weekend when compared against Aston and Saxon. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, I mean, you know, at, um, at Barcelona, he had no one to blame. Uh, he really, well, he had himself a little bit to blame. But at uh, both Saxon Ring and Aston, it was just one hundred percent all on uh, on on Lorenzo and the fact that he is uh, that he needs grip to ride and he's not getting any grip and he didn't have any confidence. And these are the two tracks where he really hurt himself badly in two thousand and thirteen. Yeah, exactly. Um, I must say, on Saturday morning, I, after watching Lorenzo crash first thing on Friday, uh, I just had a sneaking suspicion that, you know, things could really play into Marquez's hands to an extent that he would have a very, very commanding advantage leaving the Saxon ring. Um, and so it turned out his lead extended from 24 to 48 points, which is massive. Yeah, over Lorenzo and then 50. Over Lorenzo, yeah, and who, who at the moment is struggling badly. Yeah. And 59 over Rossi. Yeah, which is, you know, over two races worth of points. Um, are we looking in, you know, is this the decisive moment in the championship? Well, Do you think, uh, David? Uh, I looked back through some uh, history books before the uh, before the start of the Saxon Ring and we, we uh, messaged each other about this. And um, the uh, apart from last year... The rider who led uh, led the championship after eight races has gone on to win every single championship um, since 1992, and that was when you know Mick Doohan were completely dominated the first few races and then broke his leg. Last year, Rossi was leading the championship. 
But arguably, if it wasn't for the events around Sepang, then, uh, you know, maybe he could even have won that championship. So I think even going into the Saxon ring, uh, the Marcus was the clear favourite. Now, even if Lorenzo wins the, all nine races, coming second would be enough for Marquez to retain retain his championship lead. Yeah, and it's hardly a surprise to learn that in each of Marquez's four uh, championship years, he's uh, he's gone into the winter, well into the summer break, uh, the halfway point of the season with you know the championship lead. I think other than 2014, this is the biggest advantage he's had um, at the halfway point. And you know you have to say that uh, if 2013 proved anything, he's a man that knows um, you know when he's in a, a commanding position in the championship place. Uh, he's a man who knows how to protect his lead, who knows how to to ride to to, to, to kind of secure the championship. And it's really. It's a long way back for, for the two Yamaha men, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also both 2014 and 2015 really taught him a lesson in how to manage a championship because in 2014, I mean, one of the things that he said uh, uh, at the press conference when he was asked, you know, does this mean the championship is over? He said, you know, in 2014, I was leading with low by, by a long way and had a chance to win it. Um, uh, fell off twice, uh, through basically threw away fifty points, um, and if, if that happens again, then, then it's a completely different championship. But he knows that he can remember that from two thousand fourteen. Also, what we're seeing this year is the lessons of two thousand and fifteen, which is you know he crashed so many times that he basically just you know stopped. He basically he learnt that. If he could have been, if he could have stayed on instead of crashing last year, he would have been right in the championship. And you saw that earlier uh, this year, where he has settled for you know second, third, fourth places instead of pushing for uh, pushing and crashing. Yeah, exactly. And it's you know for me, it's it's not we're not quite in. We're obviously in a, a totally different situation to 2015, but in the sense that I can't really see uh, Jorge Lorenzo going on a run where he's finished on the podium in every race in the second half of the year just because something seems to be missing um, obviously his confidence is, is the most obvious example especially in, in wet conditions um, but you know from what we've seen this year you know the head does seem to drop and you it's very, very rare to see a guy that's going to win a world championship ever struggling for a 15th place. Um, and I think in his race, he was something, he finished 77 seconds behind Marquez. That works out at about 2.5 seconds per lap slower than, uh, the, than the Honda guy. And, you know, it's just, yeah, it's not world champions form. He really, you know, he really has to do something remarkable over the summer break to kind of come back to Austria um, in shape where, you know, he's ready to go again. Yeah, and uh, Austria is going to be the worst possible track for them as well because it's all long straights with uh, with tight corners. It's going to be all about Ducati horsepower um, and uh, I think also to an extent about the Honda. The Honda is clearly a lot faster than, uh, than it was at the beginning of the year. So, yeah, I mean... Lorenzo really has got has got a tough job. So, what do you think Lorenzo's problem is? Um, I think it's a case of him totally losing confidence. Um, we've we've seen over the past five or six years that you know very rarely does he crash. Even um, even in two thousand and fourteen, when things weren't going his way, um, you know when he wasn't in peak physical shape, things like that, you didn't see him crash a lot. Um, I think Paul Despargaro said to us on Saturday that Jorge is just one of those guys. Is you know he can be quite a fragile guy and when he does have one of those crashes it really does affect him you know and it's not something that he can just kind of you know forget about and put to the back of his mind it's something that lingers there 
Um, so I think the fact that he had um, he had that crash on Saturday at Assen, um, you know, I don't think it was a coincidence that then, you know, a really terrible qualifying followed that. Um, I think he probably came to the Saxon ring thinking that it wasn't going to be a great weekend because his past record there isn't good. I don't think he's ever won there. And it just it really just snowballed from there. You know, the, the crash early on Friday uh, wasn't the best way to start. And then, you know, he didn't get into uh, Q2 for the first time in his career, um, in his MotoGP career. And, you know, it just kind of seemed to build and build. And then he just he had no feeling with that front tire. So obviously confidence is a big thing. But we've heard, you know, whispers from several people that, you know, maybe his happiness um, in that team at the moment just isn't, you know, isn't what it should be. Um, his feeling of, of comfort, his feeling of, of of wanting to be, you know, wanting to feel comfortable. It's just not there at the moment. And I think that's also something that's probably playing into this. Yeah, I mean, that, I would definitely agree with that. There is clearly feels like there is a lack of faith in, or well, it feels like Lorenzo feels there is a lack of faith in him from the side of Yamaha. I think this is still all the the, the aftermath of, you know, Sepang last year and the way that the championship ended. I think Lorenzo really feels that he's the world champion and uh, he should be supported by Yamaha and Yamaha are not, uh, or he feels that Yamaha are not supporting that way because the, the, the vibe in the garage really doesn't look like it's the same... There isn't the same sort of feeling of, of trust and, you know, a real close-knit community. I mean, normally every single media debrief that Lorenzo does, Wilco Zielenberg is there. But the I think he seems to be missing more debriefs than normal. Uh, I'm just not seeing Zielenberg around as much as, uh, as in previous years. That might just be my perception. I might be wrong. But it certainly just feels like there is... It doesn't help also that, you know, Lorenzo's off, uh, off to Ducati at the end of this year. And so a few bridges are being are being burned I think it's it's all everyone is taking a little bit of a step back no one really trusts each other then you've got the Michelins um, which uh, Lorenzo really hasn't got on with especially the front tyre he needs that absolute faith in the front tyre to be able to uh, you know keep the corner speed Saxon Ring he crashed three times which is probably the most he's ever crashed in a weekend since his first year in MotoGP he's had eight crashes this year and we're only halfway through the season mm. which I think is more than in the last three years yeah combined Com combined yeah. yeah yeah i think he crashed three times last year yeah three times last year two times the year before and then three times and three the, yeah yeah mind yeah. you 2013 he only crashed three times but in two of those <laughs> crashes he broke his collarbone so um, yeah that's uh, when he does it he does it right <laughs> absolutely yeah yeah and of course there was i think we could we could safely assume that, that jorge probably wanted to take his current crew chief to ducati um to ducati uh, with him and Ramon Fercada has decided to stay in in the Yamaha and, and work with um, with Maverick Vinales in the future. Um, Wilco Zielenberg's been with Yamaha for a long time. Yeah, Wilco is Wilco is a hundred percent a Yamaha man. Yeah, so he he was you know he's he was going to stay as well. Um, so yeah, there just seems to be a slight disconnect where Lorenzo feels slightly alone at the moment. Yeah, and you know with in times like this when he needs people to gather around him, um, you know to give him some support, to give him some help, to give him some advice. Maybe there isn't that same support structure that there was in the past, um, you know, which, which which kind of let him um, feel at home. To me, I don't think it's a, that, that Yamaha have abandoned him. I don't think that at all. I think they're trying to help him as much as they can. But a rider has to want to be helped. And if if I don't think Lorenzo 
has the same belief, the same. Uh, I don't think Lorenzo. I think the, the lack of trust is very much on Lorenzo's side, and so he's he's just suspicious of everyone, and uh, and so that whole the, the whole structure is just not working the way that it needs to be. Yeah, and I think if you saw last year, um, whenever Lorenzo, whatever Yamaha, sorry, introduced a new. Um, a new component um, you know both riders would basically would test it would come to a conclusion and then you would see both riders using it from there on and um, I think last year at Aston both uh, Yamaha introduced a new chassis and uh, you know Rossi and Lorenzo both came to the same conclusion that it was an improvement on what they were using before that and they began to use it going forward this year we've seen Rossi using um, you know a different chassis at one point and then in another round Lorenzo using it we found out on Saturday morning I think that Lorenzo was once again testing uh, the chassis that Yamaha had brought to the Sepang test at the start of the season that's right um, you know there just seems to be not quite the same clear thinking um, in terms of development and going forward that, that there was in the past um, you know and I guess almost maybe even slightly an element of doubt there you know doubting maybe what he thought in the past which again you wouldn't have seen in 2015 um, maybe thinking that okay did I come to the wrong conclusion when I discarded that chassis earlier on in the season uh, I'm not sure maybe I should try it again just little things like that you know seem I think are you know small signs that uh, well obviously the confidence isn't there but the same sort of forthright thinking isn't there yeah obviously things have made, been made a lot more complicated by the fact that we have uh, um, new tyres and Michelin themselves are actually I mean so far I have to say Michelin have done a, a really really great job uh, much better than I thought I thought there were going to be a lot more crashes um, I, I thought they, I thought the times were going to be a lot slower but they produced you know tyres which perform the times are fast the the, the tyres are holding up well uh, especially after the first the first time the tyres were introduced they're the Valencia test people were falling left, right and centre um, they fixed most of those problems uh, obviously there, there are still problems but Michelin are developing their tyres so quickly that it is actually really hard uh, for the manufacturers to keep up because the tyres keep changing yeah and obviously that has to be uh, that has to be factored into it um, and we've seen you know Ducati starting the year very strongly and then they were obviously hamstrung by the new harder rear tyre that was introduced after Reading blew up in, uh, in Argentina so yeah there is a constant evolving going on yeah, and so the, the basically the chassis manufacturers are chasing a moving target. So it's yeah. going to be. I think next year we will see a much clearer. Um, it, it's going to be much easier because the, I mean the tires will continue to develop, but they'll develop much more slowly and in a specific direction, in a much more controlled direction. Uh, at the moment, um, the, there are a lot of changes going on. As, as as I mean, this is why Michelin go races. It's why everyone go, goes racing because you learn so much by actually doing it by by pushing things to destruction. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think it's worth giving a little bit of time to Cal Crutchlow. Um, he'd only finished uh, in the top six, I think, one time before he came to Germany. It's been a tough, tough season um, for the LCR squad and for Kral. Um, You know, there were crashes in each of the, the first three races. We know he's a, he's a, he's a big talent. Um, we know that he's probably, you know, a rider that, that should be in the top six most weekends. Um, but it was good to see Kyle back in form this weekend, and he really was really strong um, and I think there was even a slight hinge of uh, of regret he thought that he could have won that race 
Oh yeah, yeah. He was, but mind you, he's been saying for the past three or four races that he thought he could re- he could win that race, but um, <laughs> but things never worked out for him. I think he basically he was sort of thinking about staying out, staying out on the uh, uh, on the wet tires, making it to the end, thinking that he could have won the race if he'd have done that. Then um, basically, he was lapping six or seven seconds uh, a lap slower than everyone else. That stage, I think, lap twenty three seven. Uh, what's that? Seven seconds. So that's you know fifty seconds that he basically would have been down the road. Um, and that still would have put Marquez 30 seconds ahead of him and a whole bunch of other people ahead of him as well. Yeah. So it's really, um, uh, I, I think he was, um, I think he was wrong. And maybe if he had come in earlier, I think, you know, if he had come in at lap 19, lap 20 instead of lap 23, then that would have been perfect. Then it really would have been tough for Marcus to actually try and beat him. But, uh, yeah. but you know, he didn't. He got caught up with a fight and, and, and came in too late. And it's, it, I guess it kind of builds on, you know, I think he was fastest at the, the one day test after the Barcelona race. Um, he was then strong in the rain in Aston. Um, and wasn't looking too bad in the dry either. Um, and it seems to be that that team is just getting a little bit more of an understanding with the front end of that bike where they had been struggling so much at the start of the year. Um, I think they're slowly making progress with the electronics. Um, and Honda have maybe pushed uh, one or two uh, machine upgrades their way in the past uh, in the past two weekends as well, which I think is uh, is going to help them go forward going forward. Yeah, exactly. I I understand that you found out that uh, there are some uh, new bits and pieces which help uh, make the engine a little easier to manage, which has been the real um, uh, which is that it's been the real bugbear of the Yamaha or sorry of the Honda uh, that, that it's been so aggressive and now the engine is a little bit smoother, a little bit and a little bit more powerful as well. Yeah, I think uh, I think. I heard, I found out somewhere that uh, they had some new throttle bodies to, to test uh, through the, the German Grand Prix, which I think was also available to the Mark VDS squad as well, which might um, explain, you know, Miller has uh, has definitely found something in recent weeks. And that's something that's probably going to help them going forward into the second half of the year. Yeah, well, I, I, I think winning a race is also going to help uh, uh, <laughs> Jack Miller go forward. I mean, you know, he needed he needed confidence boost and, uh, and he really got it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, well, that uh, that brings an end to our, our discussion about the MotoGP race. We're going to take a short advertisement break, and then we'll be back with some more MotoGP action. Hi, guys. David Emmett here. A quick note to remind you to follow us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash podcast. Okay, so welcome back. We're going to discuss a little, a little bit more about the uh, about the MotoGP race and about Ducati in particular. I think we mentioned earlier, David, that uh, we went into this weekend not really expecting a great deal. Uh, yet we saw Andrea Dovizioso finish the race on the podium in third place, and we saw Scott Redding come within two laps of getting his best ever MotoGP result in second. If there was one man that looked as if he was about to burst into tear at any moment on Sunday evening, it was Scott Redding. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was, um, uh, was it uh, Jerez? Oh, yeah, after after Jerez, he was um, absolutely gutted as well. But that was a very, very different kind of gutted. That was just sheer frustration. This was, um, he could smell the podium and he had it in his hands and he'd had to watch it you know, sort of slip out of his hands. So, yeah, I mean, you you felt really sorry for um, you felt really sorry for uh, for for Scott Redding. He it was such a because he had such a really it was such a really strong ride. But you know, he was out of the intermediates, and and at the end of the race, the intermediates were just uh, were, were just starting to. 
lose their advantage really in the by the end of the race anyone on slick tires was really had the uh, had the had the upper hand yeah exactly and i think uh, you know davizioso was on intermediate tires as well but redding had pitted just a few laps before and you could really see that the intermediates were coming towards the end of their their shelf life you know and he just wasn't able to he wasn't able to respond in any sort of way whenever uh, both crutzlow and, and davizioso came past him yeah exactly well what was really interesting was that eugene laverty actually uh, tried the intermediates on the on friday even though it was completely dry uh, it was so cold that uh, uh, laverty decided you know what i'm going to go out on the intermediates get a feeling for it and he was saying that you know that they were very good tyres it's just that they were sort of they were rolling through the corners so you could really feel that that it was starting to push um, and I think that is the difference between the intermediates and the slicks on a dry track they you know you're sort of rolling off the edge of the uh, of the intermediates and that's you know two or three seconds a lap or well maybe one or two seconds a lap and that's just the difference between finishing on the podium and, and, and finishing fourth yeah yeah absolutely and I think um, Scott was having real difficulty through qualifying and free practice. Um, he was outside the top 10, didn't get into Q2, I don't think, on Saturday afternoon, and just had no feeling on the front, uh, you know, whenever he was pitching into the left-hand corners. And obviously, the majority of the corners around the sixth ring are, are left-handers, and he was just feeling no confidence whatsoever. And he was praying for a wet race. Um, so in some ways, you know, that kind of played into his hands. But, you know, I think really... You know, you take uh, you take Hareth and you take Catalonia out of uh, out of the first part of the season, and you could say that Redding's been quite impressive in each race. Um, I know he didn't finish in Le Mans, he didn't finish in Mugello um, through mechanical issues. You know, but he was on for a good maybe top six, maybe top eight um, in both of those races. And then obviously uh, the podium in Aston last time out, and uh, and fourth place here. I think you know Redding's finally you know he's finding his feet. Uh, in the Ducati squad and I think that bodes quite well going forward to to Austria um, after the summer break yeah what's interesting is that in the previous years the the Tech 3 Yamaha squad has obviously been the the, the top private uh, uh, or the, the top satellite team and Pramac this year seemed to be taking it over I mean uh, obviously uh, Paul Espargaro is having a fantastic year uh, but you look at what Redding's doing you look at what Petrucci's doing you know two really really strong riders they're, they're, they're both having uh, strong years but Petrucci despite having having banged his hand up so badly uh, yeah I, I think that I think the pair of them are they are they're the people that you put your money on uh, uh, every weekend uh, for a podium, uh, which is going to give you long odds and, and the possibility of a good return. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you know, by all intents, uh, for all intents and purposes, the future does look rather bright for Ducati because the the obviously the two day test at Spielberg in Austria, uh, the kind of revamped A one ring, has just concluded, and Ducati looked in an incredible position of strength. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was really quite ridiculous. The uh, 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 the advantage the Ducati had at the Red Bull ring. Uh, obviously, it's a it's a circuit which is mostly straight lines and uh, and strung together with a few corners. It's sort of tightish corners. Uh, the Ducati has really good mechanical grip. It's got really good acceleration. Uh, Great electronics. It, yeah, it, yeah. It's, the electronics are sorted. Uh, the it, it breaks well and it turns well. It, it doesn't break and well uh, break and turn as well as the um, as the Honda, but um, really, you know, they go in there looking. Straight Strong. I mean, you have to think that that would be it's their best opportunity for a uh, for for a victory. But as Matt Oxley pointed out on Twitter, you have to remember that um, 
uh, Mark Marquez and Danny Pedrosa weren't there. So, you know, you have to wonder what, what Marquez would do around there. I heard um, several riders speaking about uh, about the Red Bull ring and they were saying that at least on paper, if there was a track this year that was going to be suited to a Ducati, it would be that track there. Um, and I think we saw several, on the first day anyway, you know, five or six Ducatis, more or less in the top six. Um, we weren't just seeing Davizioso and, and Iannone there. We were seeing all of the guys. We were seeing uh, Redding, uh, Barbara, uh, Eugene, you know, all of the top Ducati guys were there. And Casey Stoner. And Casey Stoner as well, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who we, we, we also, we heard rumours that, uh, that Casey could potentially be wildcarding at, uh, at Austria, but uh, sadly this morning, uh, the day that we've recorded this podcast, uh, Ducati have said that there's not going to be a chance that he'll, he'll do it there. So Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the, that's the thing about about Casey Stoner I keep changing my mind about him I've always said you know that's it he's done he's not going to race again but um, you you just you never know if if the stars aligned I mean I don't think I, he's never going to come back full time he's done racing I mean and why would he, he he's got uh, he gets to spend as much time as he like at home uh, he earns a, a pretty penny he probably earns um Shall we say he probably earns more than Andrea Dovid, uh, Andrea Iannone at Ducati, uh, just for being a test rider. Um, uh, he gets to ride MotoGP bikes sort of uh, several times a year, which is you know can't be that bad. I saw that he went on a Ducati Enduro day. Um, um, he was given a go in a Lamborghini. You know, yeah, right, Imola. Yeah, yes. his life isn't his life isn't too bad at the moment. No, exactly, e- yeah. exactly. There's there there are an uh, um, and he gets to spend time. At at home with his wife and his family and, and see his young daughter up who is now riding a motorbike so everyone should be very very afraid um, uh, you know why would you give that up just for the chance he's got two world championships what is he going to do win more races yeah that would be nice but I, I I don't think he I don't think he's prepared to make the sacrifices anymore so could he do a wild card maybe Maybe, but I, I'm sceptical. I'm very sceptical. Mm, I still live in hope. <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone lives in hope just because, you know, like Marcus versus Stoner, for God's sake. I know. But what can you say? Yeah, exactly. And whenever you can you can ride a Moto, MotoGP machine as infrequently as he does, you know, compared to the rest of the field and still show up and finish, you know, in, inside, in a test inside the top three or inside the top five, it's uh, it's staggering, really. One thing about the Austria test, to me, the most interesting was the KTM bike. Mm. We saw uh, Mika Kallio and Thomas Ludi um, both making, I guess, the, the public first public appearance of the of the new KTM it, yeah, MotoGP it's, machine. It's been the first time that that bike has been on track together with the other MotoGP machines. Yeah, exactly. And it's uh, it's certainly an interesting bike. It's, it's using the WP suspension. Um, I don't think any other, any, no. there's no other MotoGP bike that uses that. Yeah, trellis, uh, frame, is, is trellis frame and WP suspension yeah. are the two really di- totally distinguishing factors. And, um, you know, it, it showed up quite well, really. Um, I con- Considering that uh, Tom Ludy is obviously a, a Moto2 rider with no MotoGP experience. Mika Calio, I don't think, has ridden yeah, MotoGP competitively since 2010, maybe 2011. I'm not sure. I'd have to yeah, go back and check yeah. those dates. But, you know, several years racing Moto2, Moto2 machines. Um, yeah, the KTM's look to be, you know, have a, have, a, have a strong base. Yeah, I mean, the, basically the KTM looked to be roughly where the Suzuki were when they tested in 2000 and... 
14. 14, but that's right, 2014 at Barcelona. So, you know, a couple of seconds off the pace, uh, but yeah, look at, looking looking pretty competitive. Um, yeah. To me, the most interesting thing is, I mean, I, I love the fact that they've come in with a, with a trellis frame with WP suspension because the the, the, the natural, it, it breaks the natural conservatism of the, of the paddock. Nobody wants to use a trellis frame or, or, or different suspension because they're afraid that they will lose. But basically, KTM owned WP suspension, so this is, uh, uh, this is going to be a full factory effort, both for KTM and for WP suspension. Basically, you know, they will have uh, they will have as good a support in terms of suspension as as it is possible to be and they're doing an outstanding job in moto 2 in moto 3 so yeah absolutely yeah and i think um, it was confirmed during the test that they will um they will race at valencia at the final race of 2016 um so we will have a chance to see them uh, wild carding in that race before they make their full time uh, appearance in 2017 yeah, I th it also gives a really good base for comparison for what um, we can expect to see with Bradley Smith and Paul Spargo on that bike uh, sort of a day later or two days later. So the race on Sunday and then on Tuesday, everyone jumps on the bikes and uh, everyone swaps bikes. So, again, that's another test that I'm really, really looking forward to going to that I think it's going to be absolutely fascinating. I get this asked a lot on Twitter. Yes, the Valencia test is open to the public. I can't remember whether you actually have to uh, uh, pay for it or not. The last time I remember seeing it, it was something like five euros. It's either free or it's five euros. So it's, if you go to the Valencia race, uh, stay on for a few more days and go to the test. Yeah, for sure. So um, KTM looking looking in decent shape. Ducati looking in good shape. I think... Uh, that brings our MotoGP section of the show to an end. We're going to take a quick advertisement break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Moto2 and Moto3. Hi, guys. David Emmett here. If you're on Twitter, make sure you follow us at PaddockPassPod. That way, you'll be the first to know when there's a new show up. Thanks a lot. Okay, so welcome back. And uh, now we're going to speak a little bit about Moto2. And I think like MotoGP, we could say that this has had some serious consequences for the championship. It was very interesting coming into Germany. Uh, Johan Zarco was tied uh, level with points with Alex Rins and Sam Lowe's was just five points behind, behind uh, both of those guys. Um, treacherous conditions, uh, a fantastic Moto2 race. And one gentleman seems to have stolen a little bit of a march on his pursuers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was just an absolutely imperious um, uh, performance by Johan Zarco. I mean, he was chased really hard all the way to the line by uh, Jonas uh, Jonas Folger. It was basically the 2017, uh, the, it was the, the, the battle of the 2017 Tech 3 lineup. Folger was unfortunate to miss out, but just but Zarco would just control the race. Uh, to an extent, it was a all three classes had difficult conditions, but um, uh, you have to say that the these were the the, the, consi the uh, uh, conditions were most consistent for Moto Two because it you know it, it was just raining uh, basically and it stayed raining and the track was wet all the way through. It wasn't changing the way that it was in in Moto in Moto GP or uh, either in Moto GP or in Moto Three. So um, yeah, it, they had it a little bit easier, but it was still just really really difficult conditions. Yeah, and you could see there were several several points in that race where um, certain riders got to the front 
and tried to push on a little bit and it just really fell apart for them yeah um, yeah, e- yeah exactly as soon as you started to as soon as you started to push then that was it it was really really risky it was really really difficult uh we saw i think franco morbidelli uh, uh get up front we saw alex uh, alex rins get up front we saw a lot of people uh alex marquez yeah yeah exactly a lot of people doing really well and then falling off yeah, uh, it was interesting. We spoke to I spoke to Thomas Beaujard from Moto Journal, one of our French colleagues in the in the Moto GP press room, and we were speaking to Zarco. Uh, or, sorry, we were speaking about Zarco after the Moto Two race, and you know Tom reminded us of I think it was 2010 when Zarco was fighting for the One Two Five Championship. Um, he, if you remember, he kind of went on that that long run where he was searching for his first win, and he came so close on so many occasions and just didn't seem to have that last little necessary bit of concentration or self-belief or confidence to, to pull it off and I think in, it was in the Saxon Ring in 2010 where he finished absolutely level with uh, with Hector Faubel. Oh yes. They, they, they couldn't be separated. That's right, I had to and go I've, back to fastest to second yeah, fastest lap or something. Yeah, sure, the second fastest lap, you know, and I think it, it, you know, in that race, you know, Zarco should have won that, you know, looking back he should have won that and I was just, you know, when, when Tom reminded me of that, I was just thinking, God, he's, he really has come such a long way from that year in Moto, in 125 where it just seemed that he couldn't you know, he couldn't win to save his life. And if you look at the last couple of races, you know, Zarco is just imperious in the final uh, the final couple of laps in the Moto2 race. Uh, you look at Mugello, you look at, uh, at Catalonia, you look at even at Aston where he was, he was kind of, um, he had a bit of a shaky start and then he was catching Nakagami before uh, before the rain started. Um, he is something to behold. Exactly, because after two or three races, or maybe even after four races, I think I was in uh, breakfast um with a with an ex rider talking about various uh, you know just chewing the fat about uh, the, the various riders moto and we were wondering what had gone wrong with uh, with Johan Zarco we were wondering whether he was carrying an injury or something but um uh, since then uh, he's completely turned it around he's really taken control of the moto 2 championship he looks like becoming uh, for me right now he is the favorite to be the first ever rider to actually defend successfully defend a moto 2 title and of course one of the one of the reasons now that he's a clear favorite is because not just alex rins but sam lowe's both crashed in the in the moto 2 race um which i guess underlined uh, just uh, you know, just how treacherous the conditions were. Uh, Rins, I think, was having issues with his visor. We could see it was fogging up, and he was uh, he was having to lift his, lift his visor up and down yeah. across the start and finish straight. And then he fell into turn one. Lowe's, um, he started quite poorly. He had a bit of a shaky first lap, and then was trying to gain some ground on the leaders. Um, I think the rain was intensifying a little bit, and the re- leaders slowed down. And Lowe's was suddenly catching them, and then it just all went away. Um, you know, so. It showed that both of those guys going down showed what a good job the front two did to stay on, first of all. Um, showed how treacherous it was. And then it just showed that perhaps, you know, the momentum certainly is with Zarco. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to me right now, I think this championship is Zarco's to lose. Uh, and in the in his current form, he doesn't look like being inclined to lose it. He really, he's, yeah, he's just totally in control. Um, you can, it, it was actually, I mean... 
thinking about sort of next year because you know obviously Zarco, Folger, Lowe's, uh, Rince all moving up to MotoGP. Um, Zarco is really starting to look like the best prepared rider to actually race in in MotoGP, and especially on the Yamaha, it really looks like it's going to it's going to suit him. He's a very thoughtful and calm, methodical rider. He's very um, he's very smooth, um, and I think that's really going to I think it's really going to play to the Yamaha strengths. Yeah, and he's a rider that um, that we know depends so much on a comfortable, uh, tight knit kind of feeling within a team. Um, you know, he obviously had that year in one two five with the with the IO team, um, and it wasn't until he kind of returned to the team in two thousand and fifteen uh, that he you know he started to, to taste champagne so regularly again. And going into going into Hervé Poncheval's Tech Three squad, a French outfit, you know, I think he's going to have Guy, he's going to slot into Bradley Smith's side of the garage. So he'll have Guy Coulon as a crew chief. Um, a lot of French guys working around him. You'd have to say that that's going to be you know a good setup for uh, for Zarco and MotoGP. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. it's it's a really solid basis for him. So I think he's going to be it, it's going to be really good. Uh, on the yeah. other side, Jonas Folger again came really close. You could see why Jonas Folger, why Tech Three signed Jonas Folger mm. because he's clearly just really talented. His problem is he's just he's just really really inconsistent. When he's good, yeah. he's very very good. When he's bad, he's mediocre. Yeah, sure. And it was the first time we've seen uh, Folger at the front since he actually signed for Tech 3 yeah. in Le Mans. Yeah, exactly. Thursday at Le Mans. You know, he's just had a, you know, a rotten run of races since then. Um, Julian Simon finished third. Um, the first time we've seen Julian uh, up towards the sharp end of a Moto2 race in quite a while. Quite an achievement on a speed-up chassis. Yeah, abs- yeah, absolutely. But uh, again, what happens with the um, in the wet is that the it, it levels the machinery to an extent, a certain extent. You can't, uh, and certainly, I mean, you never reach the same sort of. Uh, lean angle on a in a wet race as you do in a dry race so you're never le- you're really reaching the absolute limit of the uh, of the machinery and so it puts it all back in the hands of the riders so uh, and certainly I seem to recall Sam Lowe saying last year that the speed up is a especially in cold conditions um, when there's a lot of grip it works really really well it's when it's when it gets hotter and greasier that it that things that it gets a little bit more difficult to control yeah and I think someone had had a foot injury um, I think a left foot injury that he's still recovering from um, so he did quite remarkably well to you know to to, to, to get that podium um, the first in some time um, I'd just also like to say that uh, we're both admirers of Lorenzo Baldessari uh, the the Italian teenager finished fifth place after dislocating his shoulder in morning warm-up on Sunday morning and it's not the first time I think he dislocated his shoulder Qatar. in Qatar as well. Yeah, and he wasn't pa- he wasn't past fit the race, but he was uh, you know he was posting kind of videos of of him doing push ups and the like. You know, um, yeah, he, he was he was very keen to do that, and you know it's quite quite an endearing trait. We all <laughs> like to see a bit of a bit of kind of nuttiness and disregard for for one's health in uh, in the motorcycle That's racing right. fraternity. Yes. Yeah. Um, so Baldessari finished fifth, which was a, which was a fine achievement. Um, right, ahead, weekend, just ahead of, of Luca Marini, uh, I think Luca Marini has probably got the toughest job in motorcycle racing being the brother of, of Valentino Rossi and uh, there's only one Valentino Rossi well perhaps actually I'll tell you what uh, uh, Luca Marini and Alex Marquez they've probably both got the two uh, the, the two toughest jobs in, in motorcycle racing and um, uh, Marini is is putting on a re- is putting a really good fist of it. He's really uh, he's developing calmly, slowly, nicely, but also actually putting in the performance. Finishing six, I think, is is, is extremely commendable. Two riders that I think you look at if you're a top team boss in Moto Two, 
uh, you will be looking at both of those riders and thinking, how much do I need to pay to get that man to come to my team? Yeah, yes, absolutely. And of course, there is a very uh, high profile, well, there's a couple of high profile um, uh, vacancies, especially to me, the most interesting one is at uh, Ponce, where um, uh, Alex Rince is leaving. And if you look at Ponce's track record, Alex Rince replaced Maverick Vinales, Maverick Vinales replaced Paul Espargaro. These are, you know, these are all genuinely really, really quick riders. So who do you put on that bike? Yeah, I always thought the, the, the kind of most logical person to put on that bike would be Jorge Navarro because he's really the only Spaniard in the Moto3 class at the moment that is is making any impression. Uh, I think Navarro maybe isn't the most naturally gifted rider in the world, but he's definitely quite a, an astute young man, uh, quite clever. I always thought that that seemed to be a logical you know choice because you assume that Cedar would want a, a Spanish rider in there. We'd heard that he had tried to sign Alec Marquez. Um, Marquez was confirmed to stay with Mark VDS for another year uh, in the Saxon ring. Um, and then there were some interesting rumors in the Spanish press on Monday. Um, one of our Spanish colleagues, Jaime Martin, was reporting in Marquez that Pons is actually interested in Fabio Cuadraro to take that seat. Which would be an absolute shocker because Cuadraro had a really good first year. Uh, on the Honda, he's totally. He's been a complete disaster on the KTM. Um, he was lapped. He was lapped on Sunday. He was lapped on Sunday. Yeah. Do you know what? I didn't even notice. Or I mean, yeah. I've, I've literally stopped paying attention to him because he's so far back. You're sort of surprised when all of a sudden he gets into the top six, whereas before you're sort of like sitting there, where thinking, well, you know, first win has got to be coming soon. Um, yeah. Uh, but perhaps, I mean, there are, there's lots of rumours about Quattro. There's lots of complaints about his manager being a uh, an odd figure. Um, he can't... Overbearing. Sorry? Being a little overbearing. Uh, yeah, exactly. A little overbearing, demanding. A, a common trait amongst uh, most of GP managers. There are a few good ones and lots and lots of really awful ones. Um, there, you also see, um, like I said, he hasn't really got to grip with the... Um, with KTM, from what I understand, his biggest problem is actually the the way is the engine braking. The engine braking is very very aggressive. Um, so it's you know it's a gamble taking Quartararo, but it's a gamble that you know it might work, it might pay off, and also he's not doing anything in 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 Moto Three. So you know why not? And you know we spoke about Baldessari before. He was of course was in Fausto Cristini's Moto Three team, um, and wasn't really doing a great deal, you know, despite some promising showings in the Red Bull Rookies Cup the year before. And they decided that, you know what, actually you would probably be more suited to, to a Moto2 machine. You're, you're kind of growing at quite a rapid rate. And he was fast-tracked into Moto2 and, it, you know, it took him a few years to get up to speed, but look what he's doing now. Yeah, exactly. And, and being, staying in Moto3 is no, is no guarantee for actually doing well in Moto2. There doesn't seem to be a particularly smooth transition from Moto3 to Moto2. Because if you look at, you know, there are, what, two or three, Three former Moto Three champions in uh, in Moto Two who were not doing much. Uh, Danny Kent, obviously, who dominated last year and is yeah. he's just struggling mostly with himself. It seems Sandro Cortese, who has been uh, at best mediocre or throughout his Moto Two mm. career. Yeah, and Alex Marquez, who's been who's been very much in the Sandro Cortese school of uh, of Moto Two riders. Yeah. So. Yeah, it, it, it's got to be worth taking a risk sometimes, and especially I think if you can sign them in a, a to a good a, to a good contract. And in the Ponce team, I mean, Cita Ponce, well, yeah, he's not stupid. Look at the riders he's had in the past. It's a really good structure. It's a really smart team. It's one of the. I mean, there are basically three 
probably three top teams in uh, in in Moto Two, and Pons is absolutely one of them. For sure, for sure, absolutely, yeah. So should be interesting to see uh, to see who fills that vacancy. Um, looking on to Moto Three, then uh, basically it was wet at the start of this race and it just got wetter and wetter and wetter and there was one particular rider who just kept pushing and pushing and pushing <laughs> exactly Ref- basically uh, re- the, the <laughs> motor three refused. race can be um uh the the, the motor three race can be summarized in a single sentence it was wet and uh Poway won um yeah. it was as simple as that again it was insane it was it was ridiculous it was almost embarrassing his margin of a, a, a victory over the rest. He was, he was just so much faster. It was a joy to watch, but you, I mean, you had to watch through sort of, you know, through from behind a pillow because you you kept on wondering when's he going to fall off. But uh, you know, Powy Powy didn't. Yeah, he kind of you know didn't pay any attention to that sort of conventional wisdom of of wet weather riding, like oh, stay away from the curbs, you know, stay off the white lines. Yes. You know, every, every single lap you saw him coming out of the lap cor- uh, the last corner, you know, all over the curbs and just you know, yeah, bike but, would be shaking underneath him and exactly because uh, um, Mark in the morning warm him up in the wet. Mark has a gone down mark marcus had gone down really heavily um uh, when he just touched a white line but powie was just you know powering over it like like they weren't there it was you know he was he was using the because the curbs will actually give you more grip in the wet because they use a they use a special um uh, abrasive coating so they do actually have quite good grip especially in the wet. it's just that you have to cross the white line to get to them and that's the that's the really really tricky part he just seems to have a very just a, an incredible gift for being able to find grip whenever there is none uh, we saw obviously in Argentina earlier in the year when it started off I think wet and you know it was drying and he was out in slick tires and was able to find you know I think was maybe 10 11 12 seconds ahead after five six laps um, he is able to find grip when it apparently isn't there for the rest of the field well there were, there was a I think the SAATC which is the uh, uh, Asia Talent Cup people the organisation which which runs the Asia Talent Cup which is basically the Asian equivalent of the Red Bull Rookies they posted an absolutely fantastic piece of video of the um, uh, some of the underbone racing in, in Malaysia in Sepang because uh, uh, Paui is Malaysian he raced a lot in the um, uh, he, he raced a lot in, the, in that underbone Championship, which is where all these uh, Asian riders are coming up through, um, and the, the I mean, it was just astounding, absolute downpour, and all of these riders hooning around on, on you know, basically scooters uh, through through on a street circuit um, in 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 just appalling conditions. So yeah, you can really see how they develop a feel for 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 wet weather uh, for wet weather. It's worth I, I retweeted that. So if you go to my timeline and scroll through tweets and tweets and tweets of rubbish um uh, you will actually find that or go to i think if you search for saatc then that should uh, that, that should turn up that championship and because it's absolutely worth watching that uh, watching that video you shameless tart looking for a little <laughs> twitter plug there but well sure i can't blame you <laughs> absolutely so Paui was uh Paui was fantastic in moto three we also saw a couple of italians up there we saw uh, andrea locatelli uh, i think getting his first podium in moto three yes, class yeah, yeah. uh Ania bastanini Back at the sharp end again. Yeah. Um, Bastianini is rumored to be moving to IO's KTM squad uh, for 2017. Um, Brad Binder is obviously going to be moving up to, to Moto2, and you would assume with IO. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, From what I understand, that deal has been done. Um, uh, he is going to be re- taking, basically taking the place uh, vacated by Johan Zarco in the IO Moto2 uh, Moto team, which is, you know, a smart move for him. 
Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And Bastianini, um, you know, we heard that he was basically going to be, he wanted to, to be leaving that Cristini Moto3 squad at the end of 2015. Uh, he was trying to get into the, the Australia Galicia setup. Uh, that was blocked, I think, and Cristini pretty much held him to his contract. Um, so, you know, Bastianini hasn't been really the same rider as he was and for the past two seasons. And you feel that maybe, you know, it's time to change the scenery up a little bit yeah i think definitely a change of uh, a change of team will do him well uh the sort of minor concern is that i mean bastianini only really speaks italian uh and so going into the io squad i don't know who's, who's crew chief is going to be or anything but he will really need some italian um guidance if you like to uh to, to, to sort him out but really you know it's got to be obviously he's going to be doing really really well there yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's worth uh, worth also giving a quick shout out to John McPhee, who was yeah. sixth, uh, his best result of the year. Um, a tough season for John and the Peugeot MC Saxo Prince squad up until now. Um, light kind of was shining at the end of that tunnel in Assen. Um, by then he had tested um, Mahindra's new gearbox at, uh, at a C- uh, FIM Junior World Championship round in Montmelo in Barcelona. Uh, he knew that was an improvement, and finally, that uh, that gearbox upgrade was made available to all the Mahindra riders this weekend. And by all accounts, it was uh, it was a big improvement on what had gone before. Yeah, exactly. It basically just gives them consistency, and they don't have to worry about braking going into a corner. They know that you know braking going into a corner, they're 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 likely to come out in one piece on the other side, which wasn't always the case uh, with the with the old gearbox, which you know it was it just wasn't working properly. So it was good. Also, yeah. I, I think also um, worth mentioning is um, uh, Digia Digian Antonio, who uh, finished fifth again, uh, again a rookie, really really solid uh, ride after a few really good races. Yeah, sure. He is definitely uh, definitely one to watch. Uh, Digian Antonio uh, was was a guy that wasn't really on my radar to be honest at the start of the no, year. No, but, no, no. Uh, but you know, after finishing, you know. Incredible second at Mugello. Um, he's just got better and better. And I think he was, uh, you know, he had a strong top 10 result in Barcelona. He looked really good at Aston, got a podium, outfoxed out Fanati at the final yeah. corner on the run to the line. Uh, finished second there, in fact. And yeah, another strong top five, as you say, in Germany. So Tijia is certainly uh, a name to watch for the future. Exactly. The, in terms of the championship, they uh, it, it, it's not as close in... Um, uh, I mean, it hasn't been very close for a long time. Um, <clears throat> since Vigello, you would say. Since um, since Navarro got punted off and, uh, and, and Binder won there. Yeah, exactly. But, but, but as you say, um, uh, as you were pointing out to me at Saxon Ring, um, Navarro has been forced... I mean, he broke his leg, missed a couple of rounds, but has only lost... What? How many rounds? Four, five, uh, five points to? Uh... Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think three points maybe. The Varo lost to Binder. Um, he broke his leg before Aston when he was training on uh, a dirt bike. Yeah, or, on a motocross uh, bike, I think. A motocross bike, it was. Yeah, um, broke his leg, missed Aston, um, but then Binder had that uh, huge moment through Ramshook there. Yeah, and I think only finished eleventh or twelfth, and um, you know, Navarro. You know, those are conditions that many riders um, would, if they were carrying an injury, would say, okay, I'm not going to really put a lot out there. But you could see that Navarro was really pushing uh, in that race. Um, he had a few really big moments when he was fighting with the Antonio McPhee in the final laps. And he managed to finish ahead of Binder in the end and to claw one point back, which doesn't seem like a lot. But I think, you know, in terms of uh, damage limitation, if you had said, 
to Navarro when he was sitting in hospital getting his leg mended that in the next two races he'd only lose three or four points to, to the championship leader he would have taken that and you know he'll probably go into the winter break sorry into the summer break now thinking that yeah there's still something to play for here yeah absolutely but I mean uh, credit also to Binder because Binder hasn't lost his mind he hasn't lost his uh, his head he just stays calm he's taking the points which are there on the table uh, he's doing everything he can not to lose this championship which to me is just as important as actually trying to win. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, so we'll have to see whether his second half of 2016 is uh, is anywhere near as good as his first half. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's good to see that in this class, at least, uh, the championship is still up for a fight. Okay, I think that's it. David, I know I remember at the end of last year, you, you said that uh, the Saxon Ring was one of the highlights of your your year, just in terms of uh, of the event, of the travelling, of everything, did it uh, did it kind of come up to that level? Two thousand sixteen for you? Well, it was definitely wetter and colder, but uh, again, it's a race that I get to go to on my motorbike, and any rare race I get to go to on my motorbike is a good race. Um, so um, it's a, it's a fairly simple calculation. Okay, fantastic. And what have you got ahead for the next couple of weeks? Um, a couple of weeks at home, which is nice, and then we get on our motorbike again, uh, myself and my. Uh, and my fantastic wife and we are going to take a week to get down to austria um uh, traveling through a little bit through germany and uh well we've got to plan our uh, our, our route out so um uh, that's uh, really looking forward to it. Oh, a word about the section because it's a good job you mentioned the section ring because the contract for the german grand prix was renewed uh, at the Saxon Ring, but it is not still not a hundred percent certain that the race will be at the Saxon Ring. Yeah, which means you know when you kind of ponder the other options that are available to us in Germany, uh, one does rather hope that it does continue at the Saxon Ring. Absolutely, because yeah, because the crowds there on Sunday, you know, it always attracts a fantastic crowd. I think there were something like seventy-eight, seventy-nine thousand people there on Saturday alone, which is you know a tremendous number of people for, yeah, for qualifying. Even a Friday, I mean, there are there are more that there are probably more people there uh, on a Friday uh, than there are at the race in Phillip Island um, uh, and a few other of the, a few other rounds where you could say you know I mean they have like 40 odd thousand on the Friday which is just an amazing number yeah so yeah, and it's you know, and it, we all know that uh, the old the, the old stories of of, uh, of MZ Walter Cadden growing up in yeah. that area. Um, you know, it's a it's a just a, a real rich. You know, it's just a, an area which is really enshrined in motorsport. You know, and has that culture. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it really is motorcycle. It, it, a little bit like Aston, where the, if you go in, in the rest of Holland, there isn't really. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a motocross culture, but not really a road racing culture. Except when you go to Aston, all around Aston, there's a real culture of road racing. In the, the same, the Saxon Ring, uh, around the Saxon Ring, there's lots and lots of road racing. There's more, there's more of a racing background in the rest of Germany, um, but still, you know, Saxon Ring is absolutely the centre of it. The alternatives for the Saxon Ring are either the Nürburgring or the Lausitz Ring. Um, yeah. The Nürburgring is in a lovely place. It's in the middle of the Eiffel area, which is a fantastic place to go for um, uh, to go for a uh, uh, to go for a race. But every time they've actually raced there, they've had uh, basically two men and a dog turn up to it. So mm. and the circuit is just awful, you know. <laughs> I mean, such a such a juxtaposition of circuits that you have the old Nurburgring, obviously, which is just you know one of the the greatest, probably 
well, maybe the greatest circuit that's ever been built. You know, obviously far too dangerous to race now. Yeah. But you know, the, the kind of shorter track that was built. Spa Francorchamps you know, is the best. Uh, is the greatest. Uh, is oh, the greatest. Okay. Well, we'll again, we'll, far we'll, too we'll, dangerous to actually race there. <laughs> sure, but we'll, we'll, we'll let's say we'll put it in the top three of, of yeah, best uh, absolutely constructed man-made circuits ever made. Um, and then, as you say, the Lausitz Ring, which is just uninspiring. Um, you know, no atmosphere, no bland. Uh, you know, a track that has. I guess it's kind of like rocking them, isn't it? It's got yeah. a big stadium section around the outside, but, you know, a little kind of pithy or rubbish uh, infield section. It uh, doesn't really inspire a great deal of excitement. So No, exactly. Um, no, I mean, this, yeah, it's hard to say much about it. And also allows this is worse than um, uh, than the Saxon ring in terms of just accommodation and stuff. Um, allows this is further away from, from places. Um, the Saxon ring is quite close to Chemnitz, so you can actually go to Chemnitz. Um, uh, although I am told that the, well, I am told, um, the atmosphere actually, it, the, if you're going to go to uh, if you're going to go to the Saxon Ring camp because it's absolutely mental. It's it, it's mental, but safe mental rather than um, if Le Mans mental. Le Mans mental. That's right, where you sort of end up your head ends up on a pole. Your uh, <laughs> Uh, and uh, with your scalp ripped off. Yes, that's right. That's right. Your shrunken head ends up as the decoration around some French biker's uh, 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 fender. So yes, no. I again, I really, really hope that it stays at uh, stays at the Saxon Ring. I think it's uh, it's just a great track. Right, so what did you think? I mean, it was obviously your first time. What did you think? Yeah, I thought it was. Uh... It was fantastic. I thought, uh, you know, spectating wise, it was it was great. I spent uh, Saturday morning um, between turns eleven, turns twelve, and the, and the final turn, and it's it's just it's just brilliant. You know, the waterfall section is uh, you know it looks great in TV, but you really can't even even begin to understand the, the sort of the incline um, of that uh, you know of that drop away down that hill until you just stood at the bottom of it because it is lit- quite literally just a drop of you know you would say the inclination is maybe even more than 45 degrees it looks that steep yeah um, in places it's 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 really spectacular um, and yeah just like a great buzz throughout it you know lots of you know obviously the, the huge uh, the huge attendance obviously helped um, and yeah, it's one of those places where you kind of, you drive around you, when you're going into the circuit, you can see parts of the old circuit that they used to race around. Um, it's quite similar to Brno in that way. And you, yeah, you kind of get a feeling of the culture, the feeling of the history when you're driving around those, uh, those roads. So yeah, I think it's, uh, it's definitely one to visit to put on your, to put on your list if you're thinking of, uh, catching a MotoGP race abroad. Yeah, and also you talked about uh, the uh, about the steepness, the, the, the fact that the, the it doesn't really capture the cameras don't really capture the the, the steepness of that track. It's, have you been to Bruno? I can't remember. Yep. Oh yeah, yep. yeah, that's right. You were at Bruno a couple of years ago. Again, that's another one where you coming up that hill. By God, it's it, it's incredibly steep. It really is, really, really is tough. It looks like it's a bit uphill in the um, uh, when you see it on camera. But actually trying to walk up it, then it uh, it puts a completely different perspective. My favourite bit is always watching um, uh, photographers who are quite often gentlemen of my age and <laughs> of a little bit of more than my weight, trying to trying to get their scooters up that hill uh, and and really really struggling. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that none of us made a pretty sight whenever we were trying to walk back up that hill on Saturday morning <laughs> into the press room. We were calling for ice buckets. Exactly, yeah, oxygen. <laughs> to be brought to oxygen. our table. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Nice one. Well, I think that brings uh, brings us to the end of our discussion, Dave. Thank you very much for your company, for your time. Thank you. For your sage wisdom. And thank you, listener, for joining us for the latest edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. Uh, it's been a pleasure. And we hope to hear from you soon.
Bye. Okay. And at this point, JB comes in with some beautiful words of wisdom. Yes, indeed. About following us on Twitter and Facebook. Exactly. I shall at, at the end of this, I shall record something so sweet about um, um, following our asses on um, uh, on on SoundCloud or uh, something similar. And if ever Rating there were two us. journalists, yeah, exactly. if ever there were two journalists that had two asses that were worth following, <laughs> <laughs> it were you and I. Saxon ring tunnel, baby. <laughs>